serious is the threat of climate change? The threat of climate change is beyond serious to our measure. We are literally threatened as a species at this point. Uh, seriously serious? I don't know. It's, it's a big deal. The effects are here now, you know, uh, climate change, uh, the rising climates of the world. We can see it today in the Alabama heat. Um, it's not supposed to be 95 degrees in September. That's not supposed to happen. It's like completely serious. It's like literally all we got because it's like there is honestly, as cliche as how there's no planet B. It's it's something that threatens each and every one of our existence. It is the scariest thing going on right now. Like it's terrifying because in 11 years we'll go past the point of being able to come back from it. Like after 11 years, that's irreversible climate damage. People like to say that we have 11 years, but really it's a matter of 15 or so months that we have to completely change our ways. Climate change is a serious threat. Um, people really don't know how serious it is, and a lot of people are unsure exactly what climate change is, but it's happening and it's real. Rainforests are burning. We are all directly affected by what's going to happen when climate change takes over. I really do believe that it's only a matter of a year or a year and a half, two years, before people are directly, directly affected um, in terms of like losing lives. How many years, years do you think the Earth has left before it's uninhabitable? You know, that's a question that a lot of different people have, uh, you know, like there's a lot of different answers to that, right? There's a lot of, you know, I hear 10 years a lot, um, and I hear, I've heard a lot of different stuff. I couldn't tell you, you know, but the point is, it shouldn't really matter because no matter what, the consensus is that we don't have a ton of time. No matter what the timeline is, it's going to be affecting someone, which is why we all need to unify and take this climate crisis seriously. Well, we have 11 years left until um, the Earth, we've like passed irreversible climate change. And then I think we have about 55, 60 years until we run out of fossil fuels. So in my opinion, I think it's like 100, 200 years. I mean, we only have like 12 more years to reverse it, but to honor, if we don't do act right now, then honestly, I don't even know. Different people see different things. A lot of people say that we have about 15 months um, before the world starts to change, um, and then it's like irreversible damage. But other people say we have as long as like two and a half years. Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It is good to see you this morning. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3. They might be asking questions, but we can answer those questions from the Bible today. If you're visiting us for the first time, I want to welcome you. My name is Nathan. We've been in this series entitled Beginning and Ending for months now, and uh, today we're finally going to land this, com this plane. We're going to bring it to an ending uh, if uh, you've been uh, with us during this entire time, I am finally keeping a promise to you that I made over a month ago, and you don't even remember that I made the promise to you. But uh, I promised you uh, over a month ago that as we are looking at Second Peter chapter 3, that we would come back here and more thoroughly understand it. We looked uh, pretty deeply at the first several verses, but uh, we didn't get to the second half of it. And so today, we're going to get to the second half as well. Uh, because this weekend is Earth Day weekend. Did you know that? Did you, s Friday technically was Earth Day. Did you celebrate it? Did you go somewhere, do something? Come on, come on. You didn't go somewhere and do something on Earth Day? Well, I figured that Earth Day weekend would be the perfect day for me to complete this series with a sermon entitled, Can Humans Prevent the World from Ending? Can Humans Prevent the World from Ending? 
And all of this comes from the two primary pivotal events that have extended throughout human history. The focus of this series has been on the first pivotal event of human history, and that's the creation, the origins, where did it all come from? And more recently, we've been talking about the completion or the conclusion. Where's this train ride going to end? And so these are the two focuses of this series, and the Bible answers questions that we have about both of those things, about the way that the world began, and we spent uh, over a month on origins, how God created the world in six literal 24-hour days by the word of his mouth. He picked a time in eternity where, boom, he spoke and it all came into being. And more recently, though, we've talked about the conclusion, the ending of all things. And the last time we were on this topic, before Easter and all of that, We talked about climate change, we talked about global warming, we talked about the increase in storms and famines and all those things around the world. And the obvious next question is, well, can we do something about it? Can we do something about the climate change? Can we do something about the the ending of the earth as we know it? At least, is there something that we can do to extend things out a little further? So that's the question. Can we as humans, through some sort of environmental change, can we as humans, do we have the ability to change the course of the universe? That's the question. Can human beings change the course of the universe? Now certainly there are some things that we can extend the life of, like your car. You can extend the life of your car. You go and change your oil. You're extending the life of your car. You change your brakes every once in a while, then that means you can stop, and so hopefully your car lasts a little longer, and when you put new tires on it, that prevents you from hydroplaning the one day a year that it rains here in Southern California. And so whenever you wash your car, your car runs better, doesn't it? That's just the way the car wash works. When you drive through the car wash, it runs better when you come out than when you drive in. I don't know how that works, but that's the way that it works. So yeah, I mean, you can extend the life of your car, but that doesn't prevent you from getting run over by a bro-dozer on the 91 freeway someday, and there goes your car, you know? So I guess you can extend the life of your car to some degree. You can extend the life of your house to some degree. You know, at some point, you're going to put a new roof on the place. We want to take care of our house. You know, as soon as I started owning a house, I, like, turned into my dad. (laughs) Like, you, you know, I started saying, turn off the lights, don't slam the doors. Now, why am I saying don't slam the doors? Because I want my house to last longer. And so there's some things that you can do to your house to make it last longer, but that doesn't prevent the big run from coming and shaking all the stucco off my house and leveling it to the ground, does it? No. And so, yeah, I mean, you can extend the life of your car to a degree. You can extend the life of your house to a degree. You can extend the life of your job. You can keep your job a little longer. If you're a good, hard worker, you respect your boss, you work hard even when uh, even when your boss isn't looking, that extends the life of your job, but that doesn't prevent your company from filing bankruptcy and you losing your job anyway, you know? And so, yeah, you can extend the life of something. You can extend the life of your dog. If you just spend 15000 on some doggy exercise equipment, <laughs> you can keep that dog alive for a long, long time. You just take that doggy into surgery for every ingrown eyebrow that that doggy has, you can extend its life for a long, long time. But the question is, can you do that for the earth? Can you extend the life on planet earth? Can you extend things and, and humanity on planet earth longer? And this is a really important question because 
The way that you answer this question is going to determine the way that you live. It's going to determine where you live. It's going to determine how and where you spend your money. It's going to determine where you go on vacation. It's going to determine where your kids go to school. And so let's see what the Bible says about all of these things. Hopefully by now you found 2 Peter in the deep depths of your New Testament, far right-hand side of your Bible. And so let's read 2 Peter chapter 3. And it says this, This is now, beloved, the second letter that I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it has from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens were created long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. Well, let's stop right there for a minute because that probably sounds a little bit familiar to you who were a year or a month ago and we studied thoroughly this passage. This is Paul's or Peter's second letter. That's why it's called Second Peter. And this one is focusing on the false teachers, on the mockers. That's the word that he uses here. And they are questioning the veracity of Scripture, questioning the accuracy of Scripture. Of scripture. And one of the ways that false teachers, the mockers, question the accuracy of Scripture is by questioning God's involvement in the end of the world, questioning the way that the end of the world is going to happen. The Bible is clear as to how the end of the world is going to happen, but the false teachers, the mockers, begin to question that, sow seeds of doubt. And they do that by asking these questions, like verse 4 Where is the promise of his coming? Meaning, You've been talking about it for so long, and it hasn't happened yet, and so that must mean that it must not really be true. Sowing these little seeds of doubt. This is the false teachers, the the mockers, questioning the way that Scripture has laid out uh, the eternal things and laid out Scripture. They question the accuracy of it by saying, "It, it just hasn't ever happened. And remember, we talked about a month ago that this has really prevented and stopped Christians from talking a lot about uh, Jesus' second return and all of the end things because it hasn't happened yet and it's kind of hard to convince people of things that haven't happened yet when you talk about them so much. And so Christians, Christians have been quieted by all of this. They also sow seeds of doubt by asking questions like there in verse four where it says, for ever since the fathers fell asleep and continue just as it was from the beginning of creation, meaning that God hasn't been involved at all in anything all the way up until this point. And so what makes us think that God is going to be involved at the end of the world? Now that's a good point of argument. That's a good debate topic. And Peter goes, boom, right on it. And he says, it escapes their notice that God created it all. I mean, that's no little thing. But not only that, it escapes their notice that the largest geological worldwide event that the world has ever known, the third event in human history that was pivotal to who we are and where we live, that this this pivotal event, the worldwide flood, is ignored as God's involvement in the world. It escapes their notice. Now, of course, it doesn't escape their notice. 
they, they notice it, but they just don't want to think that that's God's involvement because they want to maintain that the end, God isn't going to be included in the end. And so Peter's math is, is, well, since God was involved at the beginning, and since God is involved all throughout our planet's existence, why wouldn't God be involved at the very end of all things? So that probably sounds pretty familiar to you, but let's keep reading to some passages that we didn't get thoroughly through. It says, verse 7, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Now, you know what the word reserved means, but, but this wasn't written in English. This was written in a different language in the Greek, and now this is translated into English words. And that word is used in many parts of the New Testament, and this is the word saved. Not saved like salvation saved, salvation like savings account saved, like that. You know, like when my kids get a job or they mow the lawn and I say, you might want to save some of that. There's going to be something big that you want to buy in the future. And if you spend it all now, you can't buy that bigger thing in the future. So set aside some money for that big thing that you have your eye on in the future. And then once you have enough, then you can get it because of what's in your savings account. Tanya and I have been putting money in a savings account for Caitlin Noel's college education. It's a college savings account. So by now, they're going to get to go to, I don't know, RCC. That's about where we are. <laughs> they're at RCC level. Yes, okay. So we're getting there. So there's a particular time and a particular place that this money is going to be used, and it's in a savings account. This is the word that is used here. As a matter of fact, it's the same word back when Jesus says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. It's the same word. That word store and the word here reserved, same word. Same word. Store it for yourselves treasures in heaven, meaning save it, set aside. There's a future time that you're going to use these things that is an appointed time. Same exact word. And so it says here that by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved, are being saved. Now, the original language didn't have like a word for universe or galaxies or any of that, so it uses the word heavens. And so the heavens and the earth, the galaxies and the atmosphere and the earth is, being sa- is in God's savings account for a very particular time and a very particular thing. And what is that? Fire. Whatever that means, fire. Now let's keep reading verse 7. It says that the heavens and earth then are kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Kept for the day of judgment. That word kept is a different word that is also used throughout the the New Testament in several different ways. But this way it's used is the word guarded, guarded or protected. In other places, it, it uses the same word as it's describing God keeping someone in the state that they are in. They are kept in a state like a person who's a Christian who is saved, and yet uh, there's lots of persecution that's around them, and they're really having a lot of difficulties, but the Bible says they are kept in their salvation. God is keeping them. That's the same word. Guarded, protected, maintaining the state they're in no matter what is going on around them. That is what God is doing to planet Earth, that he has a, he has 
universe, he has our atmosphere, he has the globe in a savings account, and it is being maintained and it is being guarded as it is until a very particular time, and that is the time the Bible says of judgment and destruction. Let's keep reading verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So that got really heavy really fast about the way that this whole thing is going to end. But let's step back from all of that just for a minute. And let's notice the, the, the big picture that Peter is painting here. He is painting a, a picture of five different ecosystems that the world has been in throughout the ages. The first ecosystem was Eden. Everything was perfect. God made Eden. Everything was perfect in that world. But then, of course, the second pivotal event in all of human history, the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't just sin for themselves, it affected all of mankind. And it didn't just affect all of mankind's relationship with God, it affected the earth. And so that brought us to the second ecosystem that our world has known, and that is life after the fall. Things weren't the same after the fall that, than our world was before the fall. But we don't live in the first or second ecosystem. We live in the third ecosystem. That's after the flood. The flood then came and rearranged the entire crust surface of the earth to be the way that we know the earth to be. It hasn't always been like this. And it won't always be like this in the future. We live in the third ecosystem, as Peter describes it, and we read it in verse 6, that through which the world at the time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Verse 5 says that the earth was formed out of water and by water. The way that you understand earth today is because of the flood. That's the third ecosystem. We're living in that day right now. But you'll notice that the, the first two ecosystems were altered by God. They were changed by God. Eden, perfect Eden, ground was cursed. And then in the second ecosystem that was life after the fall, then God flooded it <laughs> with a worldwide catastrophic flood. And now here we are living in the third ecosystem and God is going to alter this one too. We're going to get to the fourth ecosystem. That is the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, his reign on planet earth. And that's where the lion is going to lay down with the lamb. That's where the desert is going to blossom. That's where the kids are going to play in snake pits. It's going to be a little different than it is today. That's the fourth ecosystem. And if God altered the first four, if, if God altered the first three ecosystems, what makes us think that he's not going to alter that fourth one as well? And Peter tells us exactly how that altering is going to happen. It's going to be by fire. It's going to be by intense heat. He's going to alter that fourth ecosystem, and he is going to create a new heaven and a new earth, a brand new fifth ecosystem where only righteousness dwells forever. There is no sixth ecosystem. That's the fifth ecosystem. That is, that is all. Now, you remember 
from when we were last talking about this, one of the arguments is that since none of this has happened, then it must not be true. We've been talking about it forever and it's never happened, so it must not be true. Well, that's why we have verse 9, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise. What's the promise? Uh, everything we're talking about. The, the destruction of the world by intense heat, the creation of a new heavens and a new earth, that's the promise. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This verse is such good news that God wants people to avoid the atrocities and to have salvation in him. That's a wonderful thing. Why, hasn't, why didn't Jesus come back in the first century? You know all the apostles, as soon as he ascended, they all waited around for him to come right back. Why didn't he come back in the first century? Why didn't Jesus come back in the 5th century? Why didn't he come back in the 15th century? Why didn't he come back in the 18th century? Why didn't he come back in the 1980s? If you're going to come back, you should come back in the 1980s. Why didn't Jesus come back in the 1980s? Because there are still more people that needed to be saved, that needed to be rescued, that needed to come to repentance before he came back. Now, the accusers, the mockers, even today call this a flaw of God. It's, it's one of God's flaws, that he is powerless to do what he said he could do here. That because it hasn't happened, God has proven that he is unable to do it, and they see it as a flaw. But Peter doesn't see it like a flaw. Peter sees this as a virtue, that people benefit because God has waited to follow through on all of these things, and that's exactly what it is. This is a virtue of God. He is patient, allowing more and more and more people to change their mind about his son, Jesus Christ, put their faith and trust in him, and thereby having the ability to live on that eternal, wonderful, everlasting, righteous place and not avoid it. But what is this promise? Let's look at the promise. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Like I said, in the original language, there's no like, concept of or word for universe and so it's using this word heavens here. And so the heavens and the earth are going to, be, are going to pass away. And the reason that they are going to pass away is because it is called... In verse 10, it is called the day of the Lord. I just want you to notice that it's not called the, the day of human beings. The, the earth and the universe are going to pass away on the day of the Lord. Not the day that you burn too much fossil fuels. The, the world is going to end on the day that God decides, not the day that you eat too much pork. The, the world is going to end on the, the day of the Lord, not, not one minute sooner, not one minute later, not one thing that you can do to alter the day of the Lord. And notice what's going to happen on that day of the Lord. The heavens are going to pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned 
up. I mean, imagine the nuclear, cataclysmic, atomic splitting event that this is going to be. Everything, all of the galaxies, every element that was created on the day of creation is all going to be completely burnt up, so consumed that there aren't even any ashes left like that. Completely destroyed. And so, with all of this, I mean, this is pretty deep stuff. Now Peter goes into some application for believers, those that he is writing to, and it's appropriate application to Christians who are alive today as well. Verse 11, here's the application. Since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. So he asked this question, what sort of people ought you to be? What sort of people ought Christians to be? So those of you who came in the parking lot today, you already knew that you were going to heaven whenever you die. You knew that you were born again at some point in the past. You have the God's Holy Spirit living inside of you. So what sort of people ought you to be? Now you don't have to make up an answer. You have to be like, uh, good? I don't know, that's always the, the right answer. Good? It's a rhetorical question because the answer is in the question. <laughs> the answer is right there. It gives you the answer. You don't have to guess. What kind, of, what kind of people do you need to be? Two things. One, holy in conduct and godliness. Our mind is focused on the Lord. We are focused on God. We are living a godly life. That, that's knowing that the way that the world is going to end ultimately, we live a godly life. Not, not to get ourselves to heaven, not uh, to make God smile upon us because we're good, simply because we are saved. We live a godly life. We're focused on him. We want to do what pleases him. We want to praise him in our lives. And so we live a life of holy conduct and godliness. But there's a second thing. Also, looking for and hastening the coming of the Lord. So Christians not only will be living a godly life, knowing that all this is true, secondly, we are eagerly anticipating the day that God destroys it all. That kind of seems like a weird thing to be looking forward to, doesn't it? Yeah, here it comes. Now, why, would, why should Christians be hastening the coming, looking forward to, hey, I hope it comes sooner? Why would Christians be thinking like that? Because of verse 13. That's why. But according to his promise, we, Christians, are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. According to the promise, what are Christians looking for? What are we looking forward to? We're not looking forward to the new Chick-fil-A that's going to be built. Shorter lines in the drive-thru, please. We aren't looking forward to a regime change in, in Russia. We aren't looking forward to a regime change in the United States. What are we looking forward to? The new heaven and the new earth, where there is only righteousness forever. Now, I don't know about you, but it sounds really good to live in a place where there's no sin, you know? Only righteousness forever. Now, of course, if there's only righteousness forever, that means that only righteous people can be there. 
Now, this is where we've been so far. This is God's timeline for everything that we've talked about so far. We saw this a month ago. But this certainly is a picture of the five ecosystems that the world is going to experience. Started off with Eden, God speaking everything into being in the six literal 24-hour days of creation. And everything was perfect in the Garden of Eden until the fall, until Adam and Eve uh, rebelled against God's uh, instruction, and they sinned for the very first time, and all of a sudden things changed. And now they are living in a new ecosystem. The, the, the ground is, is cursed. The, the planet changed as a result of that. And then for a thousand or more years, people lived on planet Earth growing in population. And it got so bad it, that the Bible describes it as people are only doing evil continually. <laughs> only evil continually, it was that bad. And so God decides to bring destruction, the third pivotal event in all of human history, the flood, worldwide cataclysmic flood. You cannot avoid God's influence of the flood. It recreated the the surface of the earth. It made the earth look like the way that we understand it today. And we've been living in that ecosystem for uh, nigh on 5,000 years. But at some point in time, things are going to change. And Jesus is going to come back and he is going to establish a millennial reign on planet Earth, a physical reign where Jesus is going to be the president of the entire planet Earth for a thousand years. And things are going to be different then than it is today. And then the end comes. That's the day of the Lord. That's verse 10. But it's kind of weird to call it the end because there's still, there's still more after the end. You know, there's there's still more there. So is it the end? Well, it is the end for some people. It's the end for those people who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. They will not move to the new heavens and the new earth because they are paying for their own sins in eternity in hell. So for some people, that is the end. But for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ... They will move to the new earth, the, the fifth ecosystem in forever righteousness eternally. That sounds pretty good to me. And so if this is the way that the world is going to end, if, if, if this is the timeline, and this is the timeline that all those college students in that video at the very beginning were wondering what the timeline was, well, here it is. This is it. And so if this is the timeline, if this is the way that it's all going to come to a conclusion, if this is the way that the train ride ends, then why all this focus on environmentalism? Why all the focus on the environment? And it's because there's this obsession to preserve the, the, the planet to make it habitable forever. That's why. The, the idea is that we need to make the planet habitable for people forever. And it all comes from an evolutionary process or evolutionary thought process about the world. If evolution is true, if the world started out by 
uh, slow changes over long periods of time interspersed with really fast things that no one ever saw or anything. But if that's the way that, that the earth, earth has come over millions and millions and billions and billions of years, and we finally got here today, and things are getting better and better, that's evolution, things get better and better and better. You shed the bad and, and you add the good, you get rid of the things that you don't need, you got rid of your tail at some point in time because you didn't need that anymore, and you, things are getting better and better and better and better. It, that we can't mess it up now. <laughs> we got billions of, of, other, uh, of other years and civilizations in the future forever and ever that we need to protect. And so if we overpopulate this now, <laughs> we're done. If we draw too many resources out of the earth now, what about all those people living billions and billions of years from now? They're not gonna have anything. And so it comes from this idea that the earth has been millions of years and it's, and it's getting to where we are today and there's millions and billion, billions of years out in front of us and so we have to protect it for that. Now, if evolution is true, then I would agree. If evolution is true, I would agree that environmentalism is a wonderful way to protect our planet Earth. But the Bible's been clear on that. We have, been, we have spent months on the origins and where it all came into being. That the eternal God at some point in eternity that he chose, he spoke everything into being in six days and then he rested on the seventh. That's where it all came from. And you can tell from the timeline, we're what? I don't know, um, 6,000, 7,000 years into this whole thing and we're already talking about the end. This place is disposable. This place is temporary. Once God is done with his usefulness on planet Earth, there is going to be the day of the Lord and it's all gone. And so if evolution is true, then I would agree. Focusing on the environment to make it uh, extend forever and ever or at least further than it is now, I would agree. But that's not biblical. That doesn't fit with what we see in the natural science around us and that doesn't fit with, with Scripture. So s- some might wonder, well, but then why are things getting worse, not better? Because remember, that's the, that's the evolutionary thought process, that things are getting better and better and better and better. And everyone is looking around realizing that things aren't getting better, they're actually getting worse. And so that's why, oh no, we need to reverse the, the, it's getting worse. We need to reverse that and set our earth on a new trajectory of getting better and better and better. And that's what environmentalism is, is to try to reset that that course. So why, why why are things getting worse and worse? Because they are getting worse and worse. We just can look around and see it. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Things are running out. Things are not gaining speed. The, the second law of thermodynamics says that order tends towards disorder. That, that what, what was organized at one point in time slowly tends towards disorder. That usable energy is slowly running out. We're not gaining more energy, more useful information. We actually have less energy and less useful information. Did you know that the scientists have a date that the sun is going to run out of consumables. There is a date when the sun is just going to stop burning. There's a date. Now why is that? If evolution things are getting better and better and better and better, 
that's not the way that we see in our natural science. We see in natural, observable science that things are running out. Things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Disorder never turns into order. Order turns into disorder. That's the second law of thermodynamics. And you can tell that just today. Today, on, when you get home, pour a big old glass of milk, take a sip, and set it on your counter. Come back five days later and drink the rest of that glass. You tell me if it tasted better today or if it tasted better five days later. What, why is that? Order tends towards disorder. That's why things are looking worse and worse because things are getting worse and worse and worse because we live in, on a disposable planet where things are going, going to eventually run out. They're not getting better. It is running out. And God is going to put a stop to the running out on a very particular day. And it's called the day of the Lord. Now, Second Peter isn't the only place that talks about these things. In Luke chapter 12, this is Jesus talking on a different subject, but is um, equally a, a, a applicable to our topic here. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says this, And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot even do a very little thing, like add an hour to your own lifespan, then why do you worry about other matters? That's a good question. Like, do the math. let's do the math on this. God has a program for the universe. He has a program for our, our earth. We already know what it is. It is spelled out clearly in Scripture. And so what makes us think that we can do anything to add one day to the lifespan of the earth? And, more importantly, what makes us think that we can take one day of life off of planet earth? What makes us think that we can do that? We can't. As a matter of fact, all the way back in Genesis, the book of beginnings, this is what it says about the creation that we live in. It says, while the earth remains... Seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. No matter what you do for the earth, it will be business as usual until God decides to change it. We can't add to it and we can't take it one minute away from the usefulness or life of planet earth. And so what are some conclusions or some applications just practically in all of this? Well, you can be a vegan or you can be the, the most GMO consuming <laughs> uh, carnivore eating person on planet earth. Either way, this is the way that the world is going to end. You can't add to it by your diet, and you can't reduce it by your diet. Whether you buy a Prius or you buy the most gas-guzzling truck you can afford $6 gas on, <laughs> this is the way that the world is going to end. Now, I'm not opposed to, to the whole electric movement. I'm not opposed to it at all. I have been using an electric lawnmower longer than every single person in this room except for one. It's because my dad is in this room. <laughs> and my dad bought 
one of the very first electric lawnmowers that was ever made from Montgomery Ward. <laughs> so that tells you how long ago we're talking here. Some of you in here are like, is that some fast food place or something? <laughs> <laughs> so my dad bought an electric lawnmower even before I was in my teenage years, I have been cutting lawns with an electric lawnmower my entire life. I love those things. Electric lawnmowers are the, so much better than all of your gas-powered stuff. So much, I don't have to worry about gas in my garage. I don't have to worry about getting gas. I don't have to worry about changing out spark plugs. I don't have to deal with the, the motors when they don't start and they're cranking and pulling. All you do is you just press start and it goes. It is glorious. <laughs> I have been using electric lawnmowers. I still use, I still use it today. It lasts forever. Wonder, I own a hybrid vehicle, but none of those things add one minute to the lifespan of planet Earth. Why? Because it's the day of the Lord. It's not the day of Nathan. I can't bring it and I can't extend it based on my, on my actions. So whether you hug a tree or you cut the tree down to build your house, this is the way that the world is going to end. Whether you recycle your cans and your bottles or you do, <gasps> put it in your trash can. <laughs> this is the way that the world is going to end. Did you know in California, in January, there was a new law that was implemented. It hasn't, we haven't really seen a lot of the effects yet, but uh, the cities and the counties are beginning to um, put pieces together. You will start to hear about this. Uh, there's a new law in California where you must compost your banana peels and your vegetables on your counter in your kitchen. Did you know that? It's a new California law. And the reason for this is, is as the natural material breaks down in the, in the landfills, it puts off gases into the air, which causes holes in the ozone layer, which causes the planet Earth to heat up, which causes the polar ice caps to melt, which causes the, the, the oceans to rise, which causes massive flooding and famines and, and storms that the world has never seen before. And so, to solve that, compost your bananas <laughs> on your counter. <laughs> and so, whether you decide to compost your bananas on your counter or not, this is the way that the world is going to end. It's the day of the Lord. It, we don't get to decide these things. God is the one who decides all of these things. Now, with my attitude about all this, maybe I, I want to answer a couple other questions just to be clear. One question is, is, well, is it wrong to be an environmentalist? And the answer is no. It's, there's nothing wrong with caring about the environment. As a matter of fact, God is the ultimate environmentalist. The Bible tells us in Colossians that God holds all things together. The reason that you can breathe today is because God has cleaned the air so that you can breathe it. Thank God for that. He's the ultimate environmentalist. Paul tells us that in God we live and we move and we exist Hebrews 1.3 says, God upholds all things by his power. So everything that is on planet Earth, all the environmental things that we enjoy are placed here by God. And not only that, they thrive because of the Lord. God is the ultimate environmentalist. But God does not give human beings the authority to change the day of the Lord by one minute. That's not our domain, that's God's domain. 
So is it wrong to be an environmentalist? No, it's not wrong to, be in, to care about the environment. Then maybe the, the, the opposite of that would be an equally fair question. Does that mean we can live recklessly and just destroy the planet? Because, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's disposable anyway, so can we just trash this place? No. In Genesis, it tells us that, that God gave planet Earth to humans for it to be useful to us, for us to enjoy our life on planet Earth, to heat us when we're cold and to give us air conditioning when we're hot, to provide food that we need. The, the, all of the environment is provided for, for us. The Bible says that creation declares God's glory. Yes, things are getting worse and worse and worse, but it's still a wonderful resource for us. I don't want oil drills drilling in Zion just like you don't. You go to Zion National Park, the place is beautiful. You go to the Grand Canyon, the place is beautiful. I don't want, you know, I don't want a, a 7-Eleven down at the bottom, you know, <laughs> gas pumps and everything. But that, that's, not, that's not what we're dealing with here. We're not, what we're dealing with is people who are running around telling us that the end of the world is coming because of planet changes. And so now what we're doing is we're having the, the planet tell us how to live, and now the tail is wagging the dog. That's unbiblical. That is not the way that humans were created to live. So wh- wh- how do we land this plane, though, you know? Wh- wh- where, how do we end this whole thing about the origins and the beginnings and the ending of all things? Well, um, I, I think that the, the best place to, to land this thing is in Second Peter 3, verse 11. Look at 2 Peter 3, verse 11. It says this. Since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, because of it's all going to be like this, because we now know how it's going to end, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? This is how Christians are to live. We are to live godly lives. You have God's Holy Spirit living inside of you. And you, your life on this planet, our life on this planet is to glorify God, to live a holy life glorifying to God. He is the one who sanctifies us. He is the one who cleans our life up. And uh, we don't have to go tripping in all the same stuff we used to trip in before we were saved. We live a godly life, looking forward to the day that God's gonna fulfill all of his promises. It's a wonderful perspective about all this. Our focus is, is not on all of, everything that happens on earth is, <laughs> is so secondary. I know it's easy to get wrapped up in uh, latest world whatever, and there's a lot of world whatevers right now. But a Christian's mind is focused I- in another place, a place that is eternally righteous and holy. Now all of this though might scare some of you, for those of you who know that you're not righteous, <laughs> all of this stuff is a little scary about the end of the world. Oh my goodness, it might bring some anxiety. That's, I think, a healthy fear. It's healthy anxiety. And that's why we have 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. That the Lord's not slow about his promise. Promise about what? Of destroying the world like this? Of, of bringing a new heaven and a new earth? He's not, he's not slow like some people say, well, he can't do it because he's slow. He just doesn't want anyone to perish. He, he doesn't want 
people to perish in eternity in hell. That's what he's referring to. The Bible says that it is appointed unto man to die once because our biology dies out. It's appointed unto man to die once and after this comes the judgment. Then we're judged in front of a righteous and holy God. That's kind of where things get changed up because right now we just judge ourselves comparing ourselves to our worst possible friend. (laughs) I'm better than they are, so I've got to make it in. But all of a sudden, your, 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 your worst possible friend is no longer in heaven, and, and now the comparison is between you and a perfect, righteous, holy God. And I think we'd all realize that all of us don't measure up to that. I know I've sinned. I do things that I shouldn't do. I say things I shouldn't say, and I think things that I shouldn't think. Have you ever thought something you shouldn't have thought? Well, that's sin. And you'll be judged for it someday. And without any other hope, the only way for you to pay for that sin is to perish in eternity in hell. But see, God doesn't wish anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. He wants everyone to change their mind about Jesus Christ. That's the word repent. Repent means to change your mind. Repent means to go the other way. Repent means to think differently about Jesus Christ. And so, he wants people to change their mind about Jesus, that Jesus is God, that he came to earth on Christmas Day, that he came to earth uh, being God in the flesh, 100% God, 100% man, and he lived a perfect life, never sinned one time, so that when he got to Good Friday, we just celebrated that last weekend, when he got to Good Friday and he was being put on the cross, he wasn't dying for his own sin because he had no sin. The Bible tells us that he was dying for, for my sin because I have done things I shouldn't have done, and I have thought things I shouldn't have thought, and I have said things I shouldn't have said, and you have done the exact same thing. And so when Jesus is dying on the cross, he's not dying for his own sin. He had none. He's perfect. He is the perfect, perfect sacrifice for someone like me. And the Bible tells us that when a person changes their mind about Jesus and believes this about him, that he is God, that he is the Savior, lived a perfect life, that that his death on the cross was a payment for sin, that that person, their sin can be washed away, that what happened on the cross applies in their life and their sin is removed. The Old Testament tells us that Jesus wraps us, Jesus wraps believers in his robes of righteousness, which is great terminology considering we're going to a place that is only righteous eternally. (laughs) Only, Only righteous people can go to this new heaven and new earth and you can go there. Even though you know that you're not righteous, even though that you know you are not perfect, Jesus is perfect. And he died on the cross for your sin. And when you, when you repent, when you change your mind about Jesus, put your faith and trust in him, what happened on the cross applies to you. And Jesus wraps you in his robes of righteousness. Now you have the hope of eternity in heaven and that new earth. And you don't have to worry about eternally perishing because Jesus has paid the fine that you owe. That's the wonderful story of Good Friday and Easter. And when he rises from the grave, he proves that he is God. He can do everything the Bible says that he can do. And so there might be one or two of you in here today who are kind of freaked out about all of this. And you realize that you aren't perfect. You realize that you aren't righteous. And, and that's kind of frightening. That's a good frightening to have. You've now heard the good news of who Jesus is, that he died on the cross for your sin. He doesn't have to die again. He already died once. And all you need to do is change your mind about Jesus. Put your faith in him. Put your trust in him. Believe in who the Bible says that he is. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to do this. I'm going to ask all of you, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? All of you, whether you know you're going to heaven or not, it just creates a little separation between you and the person next to you for just a minute. You don't know the people sitting around you and their uh, heart's condition before God, even though you might know your own. 
And so if you know that you want to put your faith in Jesus, you want to change your mind about Jesus, that you want to, want to repent, change your mind about who Jesus is and put your trust in him and allow Jesus to wrap you in his righteousness, all you need to do is talk to him about all of this. It's called prayer, um, but maybe you don't know what to say. God just reads your mind. He knows what's on your heart. But here's what you could say in the quietness of your own heart if you're not sure what to say. You could say, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that I've done things I shouldn't have done. I've thought things I shouldn't have thought, and I've definitely said things I shouldn't have said. And I know that that separates me from you for eternity in a place called hell, and I do not want to perish. I, I want to live in this new earth. And so I believe everything that, that uh, that pastor said about who Jesus is. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he lived a perfect life. I believe that when he died on the cross, he died for my sin. And I believe what happened on Easter too. I believe that he rose from the grave, proving that he is God, and he can wash away my sin. I put my faith and my trust in this Jesus. I put my eternity in the hands of this Jesus. With your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, the immediate promise is that, that you are now saved. You are now going to heaven. Whenever you die, that you will avoid the atrocities that we've, as we've described here today, and you will spend eternity in that same wonderful, eternal, righteous place as your Christian friends and family. And so, God, today as a, as a corporate group of Christians here, we, we, we thank you for everything that we have learned from your Bible in this series. We thank you for your, in your infinite wisdom, for your creation of it all in the timing that you decided to create it all. We thank you for giving us life. You did not need to do that. You are completely fine in heaven in the unity of the Trinity, and yet you still chose to give us life. We praise you for that. Not only did you choose to give us life, you chose to give us eternal life through your son. You didn't have to do that, but you did. Not only that, you chose to reveal it to us, to tell us that you've provided a way of eternal life. You didn't have to reveal it to us, but you did. And so we thank you for that. We, we praise you for these things. And God, I pray that you would help us as your believers at Grace Community Church, that you'd help us to live godly and holy lives until you return in the rapture and ultimately return on planet Earth. Help us to live a life that is honoring to you. We can't do this on our own. It's only your Holy Spirit that helps us to do these things. But God, we are here to praise you. And, and I pray even in what limited uh, human abilities we have that today is a, 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 a sweet aroma uh, to you in heaven and our worship to you this morning because of all that you've done for us. And we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.